Would you pray with me? Father, we have much to be grateful for. Um, first of which, thank you that um, we didn't explode when we lit candles a second ago in our, gla- in our gas leak. And um, thank you for our lives. And so we should just stop and pause and reflect on how, um, how fragile life is and what a blessing it is um, that every breath and every heartbeat is absolutely a sovereign gift that you give and that we must receive. Help us to receive it with thanksgiving and with joy. And give us, Lord, this morning eyes, new eyes, to look at everything. That we would have um, gospel lenses through which to interpret the world in which we live, that we would be a thankful people. Lord, that is not something we can just muster up and do. We need you to change our perspective. And so would you do that through your word this morning? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. And um, let, me, let me set up the text this way. So we were um, sitting around a fire with um, a friend of mine who's doing a biblical counseling degree. So he's doing a bunch of reading on all, all things biblical counseling. Really fun conversation just asking him about his reading and all those things. And he told a story, a true story, from a biblical counselor that wrote one of his books. And he said um, this family came into their, uh, to his office, and um, they were having a lot of problems with their, uh, their teenage son. Super rebellious, I mean, normal story, right? Like, he's a, he's a first-rate turd, and he's not listening to us, and we don't know how to get a hold of him. And so, uh, so the counselor says, okay, let me, let me meet with him. And so... Uh, they just had this huge list of all of the things that he uh, typically screws up. So he meets with this kid. The kid says, yeah, I'm, I'm a first-rate turd. And, and so the counselor says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a list of behavior this week that you're going to endeavor to really do good at, at your home, to honor your parents and to honor the Lord. And just, just some, some, some concrete things that like I'm going to look him in the eye or I'm going to say thank you or I'm going to be kind to my brothers and sisters, whatever it is. But keep it to yourself and to the Lord and just write a list. This is what I'm going to focus on this week. And don't tell your parents about it. So he goes out, uh, counselor meets with the parents again and, and tells the parents what he's doing. And he said, I'm not going to tell you what, what he's aiming at, but just know he's going to be endeavoring to really like do well this week. And so your job as parents is to watch him and try and find what he's doing and try and affirm Whatever it is that you see him, you know, him doing. So they go home and a week later they come back and he meets with the parents first and he says, well, what'd you find? And he said they had this huge list of like, man, he was like really respectful this week. He was really kind to his siblings. And it was like all of these things that this kid had done. It was like, I don't even know what you did to our son, but like, thank you for whatever you told him and whatever he's endeavored to do. And He was like, man, that's awesome. And so he meets with a kid and he said, hey, man, like your parents were super impressed. Like, what did you do? And the kid goes, oh, I forgot. I didn't do any of it. I didn't make a list. I didn't try. It's just a normal week. Now think about what that would mean. It's a true story where the and and his point, the counselor's point is what you look for is what you're going to see. Right. I'm irritated at whoever it is, child, spouse, and, you know, that, that little one. Just all I see is, like, 
as disrespect and all of these things. And then when I start to, when I think there's something going on, I'm looking for the good. I'm looking for things to be, to be praiseworthy. And there's tons of things, right? Um, so it's a really helpful perspective for this text in terms of, we might read this text and just say, it's, it's kind of a, a long text. We, uh, we're not gonna, I'm not teaching the Psalm that Trey read. That was just warm up. We're going to teach Jacob, this text in Genesis 31, where Jacob is running from Laban. You might read this and think, man, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of bad things coming against Jacob and coming against uh, the people in this story. But we're going to look at it from the perspective of Christians who know that Jesus is Lord and that everything, and I mean everything, he uses in his kind and tender providence, he uses for our good. There's not a single thing that we can look at in this text that we cannot say thank you to the Lord. Thank you that this is here. And so we're just gonna, uh, I'm gonna read through these things. I'm gonna um, call out some things to your attention that, um, that we ought to be thankful for in, uh, in this text, okay? And, um, and well, that's the, that's the lens through which we're gonna interpret it. So the first thing that I want you to, and if you write in, your, in the margin of your Bible, go ahead and write these down um, in, in there if you, if you want to. But the first thing that we're gonna be thankful for is envy, is envy and jealousy, okay? We're gonna thank God for those things. So look in verse 31. In, verse thir- in chapter 31, rather, verse one, it says, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has gained all of his wealth, Okay, you guys know the story. If you were if you were here last week or if you're familiar with the story, Jacob and Laban made a deal that whatever part of the flock was striped or spotted or mottled was going to be Jacob's wage. Everything else belonged to Laban. And God has multiplied greatly all the stuff that's Laban's or all the stuff that's Jacob's rather. And Laban's herd has dwindled. This is over a period of about six years. And so now all of a sudden, um, Laban's sons are jealous of Jacob. Now, if you uh, are tracking with the story, this sounds really familiar, doesn't it? About a dad who's going to cut a son totally out of everything to build up another son. And then when God sees to the, the opposite happening, the son that was supposed to be cut out is now the son that has all the stuff. And the son that was supposed to have all the stuff is now envious of his brother and he's going to kill him. You've got a new Isaac and you've got a new Esau, same Jacob, same story, second verse. Jacob's life is one of those in authority who are to be blessing him. They're, they're endeavoring to cut him out of everything again. But under the kind providence of God, they don't succeed again. So you've got, you've got the envy of, uh, of Jacob's brothers for which we should be grateful. And you would say, why would you be grateful for envy? Well, for two reasons in this text. One, envy serves as a catalyst. Just like Esau's anger and, and murderous intent over Jacob served as a catalyst for him to go and find a spouse, this envy is gonna serve as a catalyst for Jacob to get the heck out of Dodge and to go back home. And so it's the envy and the, and the, um, and the false accusations of his brother. So that's one thing, it's just the catalyst. But the other, uh, the other thing that it functions here. It's just a demarcation that Jacob is doing life under the sovereign blessing of God. Anytime you sit down with somebody and you, and, and you, you, you feel the envy of someone, um, 
what, what is that? Is it because you're so beautiful, you're so smart, you're so whatever? No, it's because God has blessed you. And so this is, this is evidence of Jacob doing life in a, in a state of blessing. So you've got, uh, so you've got envy is, is, the first, um, is the first thing. Now, uh, it says that Jacob saw in verse two, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, so if you write in your Bible, write out in the margin, we're thankful for guidance, for the guidance of the Lord. Have you ever been in a tight spot where you're not sure what to do and God speaks in and gives you, um, gives you guidance in the moment exactly what you need? One, one um, commentator said that, uh, it was a, a pastor rather, said that uh, ours is never, our job is never to try and find the will of the Lord. Our job is to follow when he reveals it. If you don't know where he's telling you to go, just hold tight. When he makes it plain what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to go, then follow. So Jacob is seeing this envy again of his, uh, of his brothers and uh, brothers-in-law and of his father that's not regarding him with favor as before. And so the Lord comes to him and says, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. And so God Emmanuel's him again. And so it's just a helpful thing to remember, like you can be grateful for envy, you can be grateful for accusations, and you can be grateful for the guidance of God in your life because nobody ever beats a believer. It's never happened in the history of the world that a believer has been beaten. You might say, wait a second, like believers have been martyred. Yeah, for sure. But no matter what comes to a believer, God always works triumph out of that. So if it's blessing, and think about Hebrews 2, that as a believer, you, or Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11 rather, um, that as a believer, you can, uh, you can know that by faith we can raise the dead and conquer kingdoms and defeat giants. By faith we can do all those things. And by faith we can be sawn in two. We can go about uh, destitute regardless of what comes our way. God is faithful to us and we will conquer in any circumstance. And so these guys are trying to, um, trying to come against Jacob and it doesn't work because the Lord is with them. So we're grateful for the, the guidance of the Lord and we're grateful for the, remembrance, the remembrances of God. So in verse four, let me show you God remembering. Let me ask you something. Are you grateful that God is mindful of his covenant promises to you all the time? There's not, he's not like you and he's not like me where we wake up and, and the first thing we think about is like stuff we've got to do, money that we don't have, bills that are due, all of these things just descend upon us. And we tend to, if you're anything like me, live a lot of our days just unmindful of the fact that Jesus is Lord and that I'm his and he's sworn to provide for and protect me. My remembrance of our covenant shifts. God's does not. It is constant. And he's going to show you that here in verse four. So Jacob sent, this is very important. He called Rachel and Leah. So you've got envy. Uh, he, you've got the Lord saying, here's what I want you to do. So he calls Rachel and Leah. Guys, a really good indication of um, when, God, uh, when God tells you what he wants you to do, usually first order of business is to have a prayer meeting with your wife and say, hey, this is what the Lord has told me. Now, Jacob has a problem is he's got more than one wife and they don't like each other. But he still has to go sit down with them and say, hey, here's the deal. And so he, this is the meeting for Rachel and Leah. He calls them into the field. The idea is he doesn't want to be overheard where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor 
as he did before. So Laban is the quintessential used car salesman. He's the, we have some car salesmen. They're good dudes. I'm not talking about you guys, okay? But my brother's a car salesman. But used, I stopped to look at a beater the other day and this guy came out and he was immediately my best friend. He's like, oh, hey, man. And like, he, you know, give me his car, give me his name. Call me anytime. And, and like, the second he realized, like, I'm not buying this car, it was like, oh, okay, never mind. Like, I'm, I, somebody else has come. You're dead to me. That's Laban. It's like right, right away when Laban sees an opportunity to, uh, uh, where money can be made, we are best buddies. But the second he realizes nothing's coming my way, the favor departs. And so Jacob said, he doesn't look with favor as he did before, but the God of my father Wise man once said, my entire theology, my entire worldview can be summed up in the words, but God. You're going to see it a couple of times. This is what's going to happen. But God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Laban doesn't regard me as with, as, with favor as before, but God, the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten Times Every time you're expecting a paycheck, the guy says, oh, that's probably a little bit too much. I'm just going to dock you a little bit. Or I was going to pay you and spot it. Now it's going to be striped. And he just changes. But again, but God did not permit him to harm me. If Laban said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, all the flock bore striped. Again, let me repeat. Nobody beats a believer when God wants them to win. You just can't. You can't do it. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. Ladies, how would you feel if your husband was saying that about your father? That's a hard thing to hear, right? Because you're supposed to love your father. You're also supposed to love your husband. But this is true. And they both know it. They know that their dad has been a cheat. So he says in verse 10, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. And then, this is very important, the angel of God. This is really important. This is not an angel, just like Michael or Gabriel. This is somebody very particular, and we're going to see. He calls him the angel of God, and he said that he said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled. For I have seen... All that Laban is doing to you. And the angel of God says in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. I'm the God who showed up to you in Bethel. And you saw the ladder ascending and descending. And I showed up to you and made myself known to you. Brothers and sisters, this is a pre-incarnational manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal word of God. And he is the one that is guiding and watching over Jacob. And it's very interesting that Jesus, who is the great and good shepherd, is watching over a shepherd here. And he says, I'm the God of Bethel. But here's what's important. God is mindful of something that happened, of a vow that Jacob made 20 years ago. And he can quote it verbatim. And he expects that what Jacob said is binding on him. He says, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. It's a really helpful principle here of Jesus. Jesus said that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's 
And what's the next part of it? Can you give it to me? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and what? Render to God the things that are God's. So Jacob has responsibility to Laban. He has all of these various responsibilities, but ultimately his highest responsibility is to the Lord. And so God comes in and pulls rank on Laban. You owe me the vow. Now go. That's the idea. Okay. Return to the land of your kindred. This is, this is helpful for all of us who are in varied positions of, uh, of authority and submission. So like I was thinking about myself, like who is the Lord put me under in my life? I'm no longer up in my parents' house. I've left my father and mother cleaving to my wife. So I'm, I still need to honor them, but I'm not, I, I don't, it's not for me to obey them. I'm under the authority of the elders of this church. Um, I'm under the, the authorities that God has put over me in the, uh, in the state and in the government. But all of those authorities, all of them need to understand that all of those are derived authorities. God is the only ultimate. He's the only one that can say, jump, and we have to say how high. We can't ever ask why. Like, Lord, you are an absolute sovereign. Everybody else has to execute that authority under the sovereign lordship of his authority. And so when they start to go rogue, they forfeit. So we can still try and honor and we can still try and bless. But when, when Caesar demands the things that are God's, it's our glory and joy to say, absolutely not. I will not render to you what I'm to render to God. Laban wants more and more and more of Jacob's life. And God says, no. And Jacob is going to say no to Laban. It's a glorious principle. So he tells him to go. Now, if you write out in your Bibles, write in the margin, that we are grateful, grateful for envy and accusations and guidance of God and the remembrance of God. Do you know what else we're grateful for? We're grateful for the enemies of the gospel. We love, we love enemies. And we can genuinely tell our Father in heaven, thank you for the enemies that you've given. You say, well, why do you say that from this text? Look in verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah, this is in parentheses in the Hebrew, who hated each other's guts, right? These two sisters are married to the same man and there has been some terrible stuff going on in their family. This is the first time in sacred scripture where these two women agree. And do you know what does it? An enemy, a common enemy. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him for the first time in their life, they agree. Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. And so you've got, um, you've got this principle that sometimes in the family of God, you guys know this, that we can get sideways on some really goofy stuff in the church, right? We can, get, we can get really bent out of shape over secondary issues, things that don't matter. And a lot of times the best thing that can happen to us is a common enemy. You see this in politics with Republicans, Democrats at each other's throats until somebody attacks our nation and then everybody's unanimous. We're marching off to war. Uh, you, see this, uh, you see this in the church, right, where uh, brothers are at enmity with, uh, with one another for nothing that matters. And then a common, a real threat to the faith stands up and we stand shoulder to shoulder to to meet it. And so there's this gratitude that we ought to have for the enemies that have united this home finally. The one thing that unites them is the conflict that they have. 
Uh, beside verse 17, you can, you can write out plans. We're grateful for the plans of our enemies. In verse 17, the text says, So Jacob arose, and he set his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove away all of his livestock, all of his property that he had, that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan, his father Isaac. Now in verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. So the, uh, Laban, you remember, when he robbed Jacob in the previous chapter, they agreed on their wages. Laban, knowing something about, uh, about genetics, black uh, sheep tend to yield black sheep. Um, he, he takes all of Jacob's stock, all of the spots, all of the speckled, and he puts them in the care of his sons, and he moves them three days' journey away so, La- so Jacob can't see. So Laban robs him blind, and now he's three days' journey, but what he intended for evil, God intended for good. This is now all the space that Jacob needs to run. And so you see this, uh, we'll we'll talk about this in a moment, where Rachel uh, stole her father's household gods, and Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had, and he rose, and he crossed the Euphrates, and he set his face toward the mountain of Gilead. So we can be grateful for the plans of our enemies for they will never prosper. We're also grateful, if you want to write beside verses 22 and 23, the protection of God. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him. It's the idea of cleaving unto. Laban is hot on Jacob's heels and he is coming for blood. It's like his whole world, his whole wealth, everything in his mind has been stolen. And so he's going to come and bring it back. And if Jacob comes peacefully, he'll probably let him come back. If not, he's going to die. That's the idea. He is hunting him down. But, he, but he, again, he, he follows him to the mountain of Gilead. There it is again in verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful and do not say anything to Jacob either good or bad. This is a phrase that, that surrounds Laban's family. It's this idiom of, if the thing is from the Lord, you can't say good or bad. You just have to let it be. It's from the Lord. And so there's nothing I can, there's nothing I can say. This, we see this uh, before where Abraham sent to find, uh, to find a wife for Isaac and they're, they're dealing with, um, with Laban. And when Laban hears how God has, has led his servant they say, we, it's from the Lord. We can't say good or bad. And it's the same thing here. The protection of God comes and silences Laban. You're not going to harm Jacob. You're not going to speak a word, good or bad, to him. And so it cools Laban off and, Laban, and, and Jacob is protected from him. Now, we can be grateful as well for the conflict that God allows in our lives in verse 25. So they're still going to have a parlay. Laban overtook Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent on the mountain of Gilead and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the, on the mountain of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song and tambourine and lyre? Now, listen, does he have any right to be shocked that he was deceived? Does he have any right to wonder why Jacob wasn't above board and why he didn't tell him these things? Of course not. Because he knows that he's been stealing from this man at every opportunity. I love that he says, I wanted to send you away with song and mirth and tambourine and lyre. Do you know what's missing? 
He doesn't say, I really wanted to send you away with the wealth that's yours, with your wage. I wanted to pay you. He doesn't say that. I just wanted to throw a party. It's like somebody steals everything from you and you leave and they say, well, I just really wanted to have a birthday party. It's strange that Laban is, is, uh, is speaking this way, right? We're, we're, we're supposed to, we're meant to see this as like, man, the audacity of this man. In verse 28, why did you not permit me to kiss my sons, my daughters, farewell? Now you've done foolishly and it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Uh, and now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my God? So this is really interesting. Jake, or Laban says, I've got all of these accusations against you, but God said, no, I can't. I can't pursue any of these. But what I can say is that you stole my gods. Now, this is interesting. Jacob answered, it was because I was afraid. I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Jacob pronounces a death sentence on Rachel, who happens to be the mother of Benjamin. And we're going to see the same death sentence passed on him. Do you remember the story with the cup? When they go to see Joseph, Joseph hides the cup in Benjamin's bag, chases him down and says, why did you steal my cup? They say, no way, we would never have done that. Whoever has it uh, will, will die. They find it in Benjamin's bag. This is his mom. So she's the first Benjamin. A death sentence is pronounced upon her. And so we can be grateful for the idea of deception. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen him. So in 33, Laban goes into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants. But he didn't find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father... Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. And so he searched, but did not find the household gods. She's lying, but it saves her life. And this is, again, a biblical theme of, uh, of God's people. There's a precedent for God's people deceiving in their, in their enmity with, uh, with the seed of the serpent, that there is deception that is, that is sanctioned, and it is the right thing to do. Not that she should have sold the gods, certainly, but... Her life is spared by this, by this deception. So now Jacob, or Laban has chased Jacob down. He has all these accusations, but God has said, you can't hold him accountable for these. Laban says, where are my gods? He searches and hasn't find them. Now Jacob is all in the right and Jacob is going to let him know about it. In verse 36, Jacob became angry. So we can be grateful for the idea of a testimony that... Um, that when someone falsely accuses you, your history and your testimony can stand for you. Jacob became angry and he berated Laban. And he said to him, Why is, what is my offense? What's my sin that you've hotly pursued me? You've felt through all of my goods. What have you found uh, of all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts, I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day. The heat consumed me cold by night. My sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock. And you've changed my wages 10 times. Now at the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. And you know what? Laban never challenges him on that. He never says, no, I wasn't going to do that. 
He wears it because it's true. You were going to send me away empty-handed, and God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. And so we have this testimony of faithfulness. Now, in verse 43, this is interesting. We're going to be, uh, Laban, he doesn't, he doesn't say, no, 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 you misunderstand. I was going to bless you. He, he looks, and the Hebrew is very entertaining here. Laban, his answer to all of this 20 years of abuse and neglect, um, his response is he says, daughters, my daughters, children, my children, flocks, my flocks. You can just see him like tearing out his hair. He's saying, all of this is mine. You've stolen all of this from me. He says, but what can I do this day before these, my daughters, for their children whom they have born. Come now. We can, we can write out in, the, in your margin. We can be grateful for the idea of a covenant. Come now and let us make a covenant, you and I. And let us be a witness. Let it be a witness between you and me. Now, isn't that strange that Laban wants to make a covenant with Jacob? So we need to ask why. What is Laban's motive? And I'm going to show you in this text what I think his motive is. But he, he doesn't... They, you need to understand this. They do not see eye to eye. They never come to, neither one of them says, you know what, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Both say, I'm in the right, the wrong is on your side. And so Laban proposes to cut a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone, this is another Bethel. He takes a stone and he set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap and they ate there by the heap, and Laban called it uh, Yager Sh- uh, Sahadatha, but Jacob called it Galid, potato, potato, you know? Different language, same meaning, heap of witness. Um, and Laban said, so again, Laban is dictating the terms of this covenant. This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight. Now, see if you think this is rich. If you oppress my daughters, who's been oppressing his daughters so far in the story? Laban. Laban's been oppressing them right, left, and center. Um, So he says, if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters. Let me ask you, who's the the guy that's pro-polygamy here in the text? It's not Jacob. It's Laban. Laban's done all these things, but by God, you're not going to do it. Although no one is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. And then Laban says further to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I, listen to this, that I will not pass over this heap to you, that you will not pass over this heap. Uh, uh, You will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. Why does Laban, this is glorious, brothers and sisters, why does he want to cut a covenant with Jacob? I think he wants to cut a covenant with Jacob because he's terrified of the retribution of Isaac. Think about you dads. Think about what would happen if your son, if something happened to where your son ended up in my household and I treated him like dirt. I enslaved him. I robbed him. I lied to him. I cheated him. And now he's going back home with tales to tell. And he's going to go to his dad who's extremely wealthy. I don't think Laban knows Isaac very well. 
or you wouldn't be too afraid of this. If it was Abraham, it'd be a very different story. But I think Laban is afraid. You're going to go back to your father, Isaac, and you're going to tell him how I've treated you. And he's going to want revenge and he's going to come after me. So we're going to make this covenant so that I will be protected from the wrath of your dad, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor. He goes on to say the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. I think that's a euphemism for God uh, that that. Uh, the fear of his father, Isaac, is the, the fear, the God, the God who Isaac fears. But that's the swear. That's the, the, um, the covenant that, that Jacob takes is I'm swearing by the fear of my father, Isaac. Listen, there's a principle here that we need to just really bank on that um, in the same way in this text where the, the relationship between a father and son is a binding relationship that doesn't that doesn't change. And it's going to have ramifications if you treat a son a particular way, that father is going to have something to say about it. You bless him. You treat him well. He's going to love you. You oppress him. You strike him. That father is going to require a reckoning. And this is true uh, of, of any good dad. And all of those things that are true of good dads are more true of our father in heaven who calls himself the father of the fatherless and the husband to the widow. And he says, look, if you oppress the fatherless, I will hold you accountable. And so we, as as Trey mentioned, we're in a land where we slaughter the fatherless children time and time and time again. And we think somehow that we can go to their father in heaven and not be held accountable. God says of Israel and therefore he says of the church, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. And so whether it's the unborn, whether it's the church of Christ, we are the people of God. He is our father. We are his children. And when people think that they can harm the church with, without being, it being held accountable, I'm just here to say you need to be very, very careful. This is a God who will hold accountable Um, anyone who harms his people, which is a great comfort to you and to me because we are his people. So he's going to have something to say about it. So they cut a covenant and watch this. This has puzzled me all week long. How this text ends. How do you say goodbye to your enemy that you never want to see again? We're never going to pass this heap to to come and, and see each other, to do each other harm. So what are we going to do? Well, they have a feast. Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain of Gilead and called his kinsmen to eat and they ate bread and they spent the night on the mountain of Gilead. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned home. So they cut a covenant. They make a sacrifice. Listen to this. This is super important, especially for weeks like we're approaching they make a sacrifice and they eat it together. And there's peace, not good buddy friendship. They never see each other again, but there's peace. We've, um, we've agreed to enjoy peace. So it is fitting that this week we will all celebrate a holiday of Thanksgiving that centers on a feast where gratitude is supposed to be the main dish. It's fitting because we are starting this week off with a text that shows the grace of God swooping in at the 11th hour just before bloodshed begins to break out 
also that he can bring an unlooked for peace between enemies. This, is, uh, this has been on my mind all week long, the, the ending of this text. How can two people and two families with so much sin and cheating on both sides just choose to move on? How do you do that? When there's real sin and there's real enmity, how do you just move on? And the answer is you do not. You cannot move on. And they do not just move on. Both sides were humbled by God. Both sides were provided for by God. And both sides were summoned to the table by God. And all these things prepare us to receive Christ and to receive one another. Who is it in your life whose relationship with you is so bad you can't imagine seeing a reconciliation? You just put a, most of you don't even need me to ask the question twice. Who is that? I say, who are you at enmity with? And their face comes before your mind. And every time you hear their name, your jaws tighten and your mood changes. Well, I'm here to tell you that God can bring peace right there through Christ. Our job is to forgive as he forgave you. And if you need to reconcile with someone before you're coming to the table, then do that reconciliation. As in this text, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be the best of buddies henceforth and forevermore. Laban never sees Jacob again. But it does mean that the hatchet is buried, the enmity is broken, and we're moving on with life. Brothers and sisters, Christ has lived and died. He has risen and ascended. And as Lord of all heaven and earth, he commands his people to show mercy the way that they want to receive mercy from him. How do you want Jesus, how merciful do you want Jesus to be towards you? Go and do likewise to all, uh, to all in your life, okay? So he commands his people to show mercy the way that they want to receive from him. So let it go and come to the table unburdened. You cannot grab at this bread and this wine when your hands are holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness. So repent, lay it aside, and then come to the God of peace who loves to bring peace. Look around you. What evil, what hardship has he not redeemed? What evil and what hardship has he not redeemed? If there is any evil or hardship in your life that you can't see a purpose for, let me just tell you to just wait. He will redeem all of it in good time and it will be for you a weight of glory, all in good time. So let's come to the table with gratitude. There is nothing for which you cannot be grateful. Nothing, nothing. So come to the table with gratitude. We've been given so much. Every breath and every heartbeat is a gift. So let's receive it in Christ's name with joy. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for your ability to bring reconciliation between enemies as vile as Laban and Jacob. Jacob, who had done nothing wrong, Laban, who had done everything wrong. And it looks like death is going to happen or further robbery. And then you come in and you humble the tyrant and you encourage uh, the downtrodden. You support them. And now there's peace. There's a sacrifice. There's feasting together. And then they go on their their separate ways uh, in peace, never to harm each other again. God, we thank you for these examples. And we pray, Lord, that we would be... um, 
that we would be able to walk these same things, especially as we come to the table together. Would you, would you help us, Lord, all of us, to be humbled at your table to know that the, the body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was shed for the forgiveness of my sin and my neighbor's sin. And so I can't enjoy your forgiveness if I refuse to forgive another. Um, that it's just not fitting. It's not right. And so we pray that we would all humble ourselves and, and let you deal with whatever's still on the table and just extend grace and mercy to one another so that we could come to the table as, as we're meant to come with joy and with gratitude, knowing that in Christ our sins are forgiven, knowing that we are reconciled to you, that you are our Father, and that he who touches us touches the apple of your eye that you love us and that you've brought us unto yourself. And so we ask you to come and meet with us at the table. We ask you to bless us at the table. Holy Spirit, would you come as we eat and drink in faith and in remembrance? Would you impart the blessings of Christ to us and build us up, Lord? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.